Hey there, friends. Welcome to another special throwback episode of the Lucky Few podcast, where we are always shifting the narrative by shouting the worth of people with Down syndrome. This is Heather here, and today we are re-releasing one of our favorite episodes. This is an interview with Dr. Priya Lavani. This is one of my favorite interviews I've done on the podcast. She's so beyond brilliant, and this conversation just blew my mind and blessed my socks off. And we are so excited that we get to share it with you once again. This is a replay of episode 172, Defining Ableism, Allyship, and Advocacy, and Redefining Inclusion. Thank you for joining us, friends. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcast. All right, friends, like I said, I'm here with Dr. Priya Lavani, our gal and our, my fellow co-host, Micah, had a chance to hear a bit from her during a parent workshop. And we knew then that we needed to have her on the podcast. Um, since then, I have been finding little bits of things that she's done on YouTube and conferences she's spoken at and interviews, and I am just blown away by this woman. Um, she's a mother of a 20-year-old daughter who happens to have Down syndrome. She's also a professor at Montclair University and the program director for the graduate program in inclusive education. We have so much to talk about today, friends. This is going to be a really great episode. We're going to be touching on ableism, ABA therapy, allyship, body normativity, so many different topics that we've brought up here in the past, but we've got an expert here today. So get ready. And Dr. Lavani, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So excited to have you. Okay. You're pretty new to me. And so this is for, for me and the listeners, but tell us if you don't mind a little bit about you, where you're located. So mm-hmm. maybe some career background and some family sure. information. Yeah. Okay. So here I am in lovely New Jersey. Um, and um, I live here with my family. My husband and I have two kids. Um, well, adult kids now. Um, one is 24. My son is 24 and is, I like to say, um, culturally constructed as being typical. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and uh, my daughter, as you mentioned, is uh, 20 and has Down syndrome and is a lovely young lady uh, now um, transitioning out of the school system into the um, transition services system. And um, I'm also, as you already mentioned, a professor at Montclair State University. Um, My work in my research actually um, for the last 15 years has been around disability studies. And for those who are not familiar, um, you know, disability studies is um, not the study of disability, but really the study of how disability is constructed in society, Mm -hmm. um, how this phenomenon, how how society um, socially, culturally and politically responds to disability and constructs it. Um, And my work is around ableism in schools and society. Um, I do a lot of research with um, families, particularly mothers. Uh, Mothers of children with disabilities are my my life's work and passion and interest. So that's that's the work that's really after my own heart. Um, My research is around how um, families navigate um, the special education system and ableism in schools, um, particularly when they seek inclusive education and the kinds of resistance they receive institutionally. 
Oh man. I just did like a big breath because we're just in that with our, I have a 13 year old with Down syndrome okay. and an and an eight year old with Down syndrome. And we're just, yeah. so you're all, familiar. Of, that, all yeah. of that hits a chord for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so did you, how did you get into this field? Um, so, and that's a, that's a question that um, I get a lot and people um, assume that my work in this area um, followed my daughter's birth, but actually I was working um, for about 13 years before my daughter was born um, at a different life and career. And I was um, a therapist working um, with adults with um, disabilities at a, at a day facility. Um, and these were adults that had previously been institutionalized. Hmm. Many of them had resided um, at the infamous Willowbrook Institution, which, um, you know, not to date myself, um, but um, they had been relocated. And I, that's how I began my, my career. Like I was thrown into this world. I got a job, right, at 23. Mm-hmm. And um, I had no idea about any of this. Mm-hmm. And so I worked and fell in love with um, the field of working with the people, adolescents and adults with, with um at the time, it was uh, called profound, um, you know, disabilities. Um, I, I came to become very interested in, in, you know, the phenomenon of disability and then became interested in disability rights and, and things like that. And then my daughter was born. Um, around that time, I had actually thought, you know what, I'm going to make a career shift now. And um, I got into a doc program and I was going to do something different. You know, like, all right, you know, I've done, I've done disability <laughs> and uh, I'm going to, you know, research something else. And, uh, you know, then my daughter was born and, uh, you know, I was like, wow. So this is, yeah, um, I decided to continue um, and do my dissertation on the experiences of mothers of children with Down syndrome um, as a result of some of what I had experienced. And I became very interested in exploring that further. Um, and so then since then, yeah, you know, I've been, made a whole career shift and became an academic and um, the rest is history. I'm so interested in that study. I want to, I want to find your doctorate, <laughs> your dissertation and, and read it and hear about that. Cause that's, that's something I'm very interested in mm-hmm. as well, right? This I'm happy thread. to send it to you. You don't have to look for me. <laughs> I'll, like, I'll you copy. This thread that connects us, even you mm-hmm. being, I think you're seven years ahead of me in the journey and me meeting, like we meet new parents today and there's this, mm-hmm. this thread and this experience that mm-hmm. is, it's wild, it's wild mm-hmm. yeah, um, and informative and life-changing really. Um, tell me, I would love to know a little bit more about your daughter in school and your experience with her in education because she's been in the gen ed setting, in the general education setting for her whole educational career, yes. which is true. Yes. And 20 um, years ago, that was not a thing a lot of people were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I have to say it's still not a lot. Still not. Yeah, yeah it's I mean, true. it's not that not a lot of people are doing, but the institutional resistance that yes. families receive. Um, but yeah, it's um, since my daughter was two and a half years old. Actually, let's start with the day the day she was born. Yeah, was a foregone conclusion for myself and my husband. Uh, we didn't fall into inclusive education. We didn't like come to this journey. Um, we envisioned her in a general education setting mm. from the day she was born. And we made a decision that that's simply what it was going to be. 
Um, so ever since she was two and a half, she started going to preschool when she was two and a half, and she has um, been, um, I guess the the phrase is fully included. I don't like that phrase, but that's what Ooh, well, I want to hear more about that. So yeah. I'm going to put a pin in that. <laughs> okay. Um, she's been in the general education setting since she was two and a half years old, through preschool, through all of her. Um, and that is not to say that it was easy. I, I don't want to paint that to be like, oh, yay, you know, we envisioned it and that's how it was. Um, inclusive education, particularly here where I live in New Jersey, um, is an uphill battle for for many, if not all families, uh, particularly if they have children with uh, labels of intellectual disability or autism. Um, so for us, it was all every year, the back to the, you know, back to the battle kind of thing. Um, and every single year, um, we had to advocate for it, to make a case for it, to correct what was not in compliance with IDEA, to point out what, you know, and all of that, um, you know, that's, that's a lot. Um, but, but it's interesting that almost, not almost, for the first six or seven years, every year, even despite the fact that um, the teachers at the IEP meetings and the evaluations um, stated that she had thrived, she had done well, she had learned, she was doing great. <laughs> Despite that acknowledgement in writing, the recommendation for the next year was always a self-contained class. Mm -hmm. So she's done well, she's thrived, Manal has made gains academically and socially. And the recommendation for next year is a separate classroom and you know at some point I just have to say you know if you don't recommend inclusive education for a child that you are saying has thrived then like who do you recommend it for mm -hmm. um but it, it so that's you know that's that's just the short um that's the short answer but um you know there, there's there's a lot of support and a lot of I I shouldn't only say that it was um you know there was a lot of positive there were you know for the support of teachers that um, that were on board and that we were able to collaborate with, um, it's it's been quite the journey, mm -hmm. you know. But um, yeah, but yes, she's been in a general education setting, not only in school, but um, for all of for all of her life. You know, if it was a dance class, if it was art class, if it was summer camp, if it was pottery, every single thing was. Um, well, we have this lovely special needs separate class. And I'd be like, yeah, can we look at the other one? <laughs> like, because we just want her to go to dance class. Right. We're not looking for the special needs dance class. We're just looking for dance. Yeah. And, and, and so that's been our journey for, for everything. And um, yeah, she's been... In inclusively educated. Yeah, it's such a. I'm behind you in the journey, but such a familiar. Everything you're saying feels very familiar, and yeah, just the system. I I find like in inclusive education, and I want you to talk about why you don't like the the term fully included. That the more, the more a, a student is like their non-disabled students then the more likely they are to be included. Yeah. And then I have a daughter who at 13, she's just, she needs a lot of support to be in that setting. 
and she still deserves to be in that setting. And I mean, it's, it's a complete misconception and myth um, that's perpetuated in our education system that that only kids who need minimal levels of support can be educated inclusively. Right. right? And in a lot of the families that I work with and interviewed um, have had this experience where they are told, you know, inclusion is fine for some kids when they need a little bit of support. But you know, your child has intense needs um, for a very individualized, right. specialized curriculum, which is true. Yes. Yeah. Duh. You know, like, yes, the I in IEP stands for individualized. So, yes, my child needs an individualized education. Um, however, our laws um, stipulate that that individualized, specialized support, intensive levels included, can and should be provided in general education settings um, and can only be removed from the general education setting um, if that for some reason cannot be done. Um, instead, we've got you know, nationally um, the, the separate setting as the go-to, the first response um, that, that educators will recommend. Yeah. Um, I would have, uh, talking about how you don't prefer the, the phrase fully included, I would also love your thoughts on or your experience in watching the journey unfold from like mainstream. I think when my daughter started kindergarten or preschool, even knows this idea of mainstream and that I hear less and less, even with my son, who's now in second grade. And then it has become like inclusion and fully included. And I feel like I sit around IEP tables and I say inclusion and it's like this bad word that leaves a bad taste in everybody's mouth. I'm like, you guys, this is, I'm not trying to pull a trick on everybody here. My daughter deserves these things, you know? And yes, and, and the law states as such. But tell me your, your thoughts on those, okay. those words and maybe how society receives them. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so mainstreaming was, um, is the word used. Um, but also people mistakenly think that um, mainstreaming, the older term, has been replaced with the more trendy term. Like I've heard people say this, like, oh, I shouldn't say mainstreaming, I should say inclusion, right? Is that the new, like, buzzword? Um, well, not, not really. I mean, mainstreaming was this idea, and still is, that um, a child is placed in a self-contained classroom. That's where they receive their the vast majority of their um, services and their education. Um, and then they are sort of brought into the general education class. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with this idea, you know, for one subject or for gym or recess or art um, to sort of provide this quote-unquote exposure to their peers um, and so allows them a little bit of, it's almost, to me, that to me that whole idea is offensive. It's oppressive. Uh, the idea that you're going to sort of trot out a child um, and give them like exposure to what is their natural body of peers, to their right, what is their right. Um, and so that's the idea of mainstreaming, right? You're sort of bringing them, giving them a little bit of time, whether it's for one subject or for gym or art or recess. Um, a terrible idea, by the way. I mean, you, you keep a kid separated from everybody and then you throw them in at recess. I mean, have you have we been to high school and middle school? Right. You know, it's yep. a jungle out there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Recess is a jungle. If I've been separated from a group of people and you throw me into the playground, um, you know, or, or, or gym, how mortifying. Um, 
you know, of course it's not going to work. I mean, they, they, they don't know me. I don't know them. Um, and then, you know, we, we sort of check the box and say, you know, we, we, we allow the child a little bit of, you know, time with their, their peers. And so, so that's actually what mainstreaming, um, it's been replaced by this idea of like full inclusion or partial inclusion. And um, first of all, partial inclusion, I like to say, is like being partially pregnant. <laughs> you're either you either sure. are or you're sure. not. Yeah. There's no such thing as partially included, right? Mm-hmm. You're either removed from a place that is your right to be in, um, and then given a little bit of access back to it, and and we call that partial inclusion. So that that's just a phrase that we should um, definitely question. Um, but inclusion itself. And this is kind of funny because I, like I consider my, my, my title, right? You know, I'm a professor of inclusive education. Like I manage the inclusive education grad program. So I sort of build myself that way. But I simultaneously problematize the term inclusive educator, right? Because when you think about it, we only need the term inclusion in a society where people are yes. not, mm-hmm. when it's anything but. Yep. Right? Yeah. Um, to even, we really have to, like, let's just sit with that for a second. We, we remove children from their natural birthright place. That is called the community, the world, and that includes the classroom um, with the full range of their peers. We remove them and then allowing them access to it is called inclusion. So mm-hmm. I like to just question that. Right. And we like to pat them because the word sounds good. We pat ourselves. We've included them. Mm. What does that mean? You, yeah. you, you remove the person's right and then you throw them back for a little while and you call it inclusion. Um, and the very term inclusive education suggests that there's something problematic here. Right. In an ideal world, in a future where all children are in the general education setting, we won't need the term inclusive education. We'll call it education. Education. It should be called education, right? Um, There should be no such thing as inclusive teacher. A teacher, it should be called a teacher. And a classroom would be called a classroom. So, so that's, um, you know, that's, that's, I envision a world where um, my very title does not exist anymore yeah. um, because in that world um, the idea that children are together would be a foregone conclusion and that would the term would have become obsolete yes yes and amen I'm over here just cheering so loudly yes 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 yes, yes. <laughs> which I think leads us into this conversation around ableism. And I'll have people ask me from time to time from where I'm positioned in the community about, well, what do you see that the schools need? Like, what do we need and what needs to change? And how do we make inclusion happen in schools? And I, I've become, I, don't, I think I'm a little bitter. And maybe you're not, and you can walk me through that being ahead of me on the journey. 
But I, um, my daughter's an adolescent right now. Middle school is already very challenging for any middle schooler. And then we have all the other pieces there. So I say to people, the foundation, our, our school system is built on a foundation of ableism. And if we don't call that out and we don't recognize that, and then in a sense, completely demolish it. There has to be a total demolition of ableism before we can have what you just talked about. These schools where inclusion isn't a thing, it's school. Inclusive program isn't a thing, it's a school program. Um, So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and your expertise even on this idea of ableism because the word for me, it came, I feel like it came up about 10 years ago, maybe even five or six years ago, became more of a popular word where I hadn't, I had not heard it very much, even in the Down syndrome space. And I'm, and then, then I think people are talking about it in the last few years, more and more and more, the word ableism is being mm-hmm. adopted in, or not adopted into, but mm-hmm. understood in our vocabulary. So let's, let's go there. <laughs> um, yeah. And you're a woman after my own heart because, um, yeah, I, I'm considered one of these, uh, I, I radical, uh, you know, educators that, that wants to actually brick by brick, take down the, the system as it is, because that you said it perfectly, you know, just making these small changes is, you know, we're just, we, we need to start from the beginning. So, you know, ableism and strangely, um, yes, people have started to talk about it now. Um, still the vast majority of people, um, I feel like it hasn't really entered the mainstream consciousness mm-hmm. um, in you know recent, like I, I, I wrote a book called Undoing Ableism. I remember when I was writing it, like all my friends and family, like, you know, what are you writing? What, what is it called? What is it about ableism? You know, what's that? Mm-hmm. You know, so, and, but even today when I do, um, when I work with teachers, um, I, I, I like to ask, you know, like, is anyone familiar with ableism? And even today, people are, are not. It's still like coming into the consciousness. Yeah. So, you know, for those who are not familiar, you know, it's really, ableism is really a devaluing of disability in society. Um, it's viewpoints in which disability is assumed to be a wholly negative, undesirable, avoidable experience, something to be cured, fixed, eliminated at all costs. Um, you know, it's like the other isms, um, racism, sexism, and like the other isms, it originates in fear or lack of knowledge or prejudice, mm-hmm. um, but it unfolds as a system of pervasive oppression at different levels, of which the most damaging is institutional, right? Mm-hmm. And so you were talking about schools. Um, and, and in that context, you definitely see how ableism plays out. Um, for one, you know, I mean, we already talked about the the segregated school system, like the foregone conclusion that children with disabilities learn best in separate settings with other children with disabilities, right? Um, and this has gone largely unquestioned. And um, so, so that's one manifestation of it, right? This, this idea that separate is just the, the way it's done, it's always done. Um, but also look at how there are other ways in which ableism plays out. For one, disability is not really talked about in schools, right? Outside of the context of the special education services world, um, you know, I'm talking about in the classroom with Mm -hmm. children, 
the the word, the D word. Right. It's a hush word. Nobody mentions it. Nobody says anything. The children may have questions. Nobody answers them. There isn't a space created for children to understand, learn neurodiversity, um, different ways in which people are, you know, different in the ways they move, the ways they communicate. This is a silent topic. People with disabilities have a rich collective history, a history of oppression, the eugenics movement. Um, you know, there's there's a lot. It's 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 a history of the disability rights movement. It's a history of collective action. Um, none of this is present in our history textbooks. It's it's like been omitted. Yeah. It's eliminated. Um, so to me, um, that's one thing in our education system. We don't talk about it. We hushed it. Um, and when we don't introduce the topic of disability in schools, we give children a very powerful message, right? That it's irrelevant to them. It's about some other people. Yep. It's about special people. And they are somewhere else in a in, special place. In that class in the corner. In that the class in the corner. Yeah. That's where they are. We don't know what they do there. We don't know why they are there. All we know is they are there, they're different, they're special, they're other. We're not supposed to ask and no one's telling us. Mm. And even when their child is in a general education classroom, it's like, I call it the elephant in the room, mm. right? You've got a child, children see that there's a, there's a child there who communicates differently, maybe right. uses a communication board, uses a wheelchair, uses some devices, has an aid, is pulled out for therapy. And they observe these things, but nobody is going to say anything to them mm-hmm. about what the deal is. And so, um, you know, that's that's one way in which um, sort of it manifests. And, and that needs to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and let's say that the kids in the class do end up interacting with the students in the, in the special ed classroom, they're going in as the hero, as the helper. And it just further perpetuates that idea that you are better. They are less. We will help. We will serve these poor human souls. Absolutely. One of the most um, problematic things um, that I, that I like to talk about is this, this idea of positioning non-disabled children always as the helpers Right. So you've got these special days, like you call them special buddy day. Oh, and and in even more concerning is that sometimes um, schools or um, religious organizations like churches, I know at our synagogue as well, and I've had many talks um, since then, um, non-disabled children receive community service points yep. for um, volunteering to play with children with disabilities. Yeah. Um, and we... We really have to think about that. Right. Right. I mean, both groups of children are working hard and getting to know somebody a little bit different than themselves. Yet only one of that pair is receiving points. Right. Yeah. It's so dehumanizing if you just sit when you say it and then step back for a second and just think about what that means for the Mm -hmm. person with a disability. Mm -hmm. It's so dehumanizing. Totally. It's yeah. And, yeah. The idea I, that, that the idea that I would be rewarded either through points or through something divine. Right. Before I spent time with someone that would otherwise be an undesirable person. Exactly. To hang out with. Is that the assumption? Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. There, I've shared a story in the podcast before about my daughter's 
friends at school getting little like bear paw tokens for walking with her across campus or whatever and or playing at recess. I'm like, what are you communicating to all of the kids here? Like, what are we, what are we doing here, you guys? And and it's so that idea that that ableist thinking is so deeply ingrained that people don't even know to question it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember in my um, my daughter's um, bat mitzvah year um, at the synagogue, you know, they, um, my daughter is Jewish, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, they were doing their community service projects. And, you know, there were at least two in her class that, you know, schlepped like two miles, uh, two miles, like uh, 20 miles or whatever, to like go to this center to play with some kids with uh, cerebral palsy. And, you know, um, my daughter... Her project was to read to um, the, the preschoolers at the Head Start program. So she was going, um, you know, to read to, to the kids after school and, and do some um, educational games with them, which I thought was a really interesting flipping of the narrative <laughs> during this presentation. You know, all of us had to go and, you know, the kids had to present it. You know, and, um, you know, the, the kids were like, well, you know, had their poster boards. And, you know, we went and we played with this kid with a disability. And I just wonder if it hit anybody. Mm. They were sitting next to a child, a, a peer. Mm. I want to say, if you wanted to play with someone with a disability, you could have invited my daughter over. Mm. She'd have been ha- happy to hang out with you for movie night. Right. You know, you, you didn't invite her for movie night. And then you schlep your behind all these miles to go and play with this oh. kid. <laughs> and you called it community service. But meanwhile, my daughter was reading to some of you neurotypicals. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh, gets me all fired up. (laughs) I'm sorry that she experienced that. I'm sorry you had to experience that. It's, oh, gosh. So, okay. It it was, it was a surreal moment. We're just sort of sitting there, like, scratching our heads. We found a person with a disability. And I'm like, (laughs) Okay. Yeah, problematic on so many levels. Um, so what do we do? <laughs> How do we combat ableism mm-hmm. in our like I mean, in the whole world, but in our schools? Cool. What's what's something that like a nugget we can hold of, of hope and progress? So yeah, I mean schools are the place to start. Of course, homes are the place to start. Yes, but yeah. um, you're asking about schools. Um, you know, for one, we need to destigmatize disability in schools. Right. Um, we need to openly um, have open and genuine conversations. Disability needs to be. And, and by the way, now it's it's not anybody's opinion, but actually it's uh, it's now um, New Jersey law, at least here, that starting in middle school um, conversations about disability be infused within the curriculum. Mm-hmm. I know that other, some other states have that, um, too. So we are definitely moving in that direction, but um, you know, introducing disability, talking about disability at appropriate places within the curriculum. So in other words, not having disability day, yeah, or you know, disability event, and yeah. then confining it to that. But more and more, there's an acknowledgement and an understanding that there are natural places within the curriculum. There's social studies. You're studying already historical movements. You're studying the civil rights movement. That's a place to infuse the disability rights movement, um, the passing of ADA, um, teaching children about issues of rights and access. What does that mean? 
um, and, and really inviting people, children, to, to position themselves um, as people who can recognize ableism, naming ableism mm. in schools, mm-hmm. right? We name racism in mm-hmm. schools, um, well, actually, depending on where sure. we, we would help. <laughs> quite a lot of that in the news. Um, but naming it, um, also teachers can start to, um, and I work with teachers, and this is one of the things that we talk about a lot, you know, select materials that are strategic, that, um, that allow children to get counter narratives. So children are already exposed to dominant narratives on disability through popular culture, through media, through adult discourses that they hear, um, you know, the stigma, the shame, the hush, don't ask, don't point, don't stare, you know, God bless them. Mm. You know, they, the children are exposed to that kind of thing, right? Um, as teachers, as educators, we need to allow children to gain some exposure to the counter narratives of people with disability, um, with, of, of, of disabled activists, um, to maybe um, read memoirs, to maybe study those kinds of things, to do research on um, whether their own school is ADA compliant. You know, mm-hmm. here's a simple example of an activity that falls squarely within school standards. Right. You know, while they're learning measurement, that's part of their curriculum, they can measure all the doorways at the school um, and learn about whether those are ADA compliant, the width of the doors, they could write um, persuasive letters if they are not compliant. Um, that also falls within the, you know, like letter writing. And so, so I'm suggesting that we sort of infuse all these within our already existing curriculum and allow children to be critical thinkers um, and to openly ask questions. I I did a project with uh, my daughter's fourth grade classroom. This was a lifetime ago um, on critical issues around disability. I mean, they were fourth graders. Mm -hmm. And we talked about disability history. We talked about institutionalization, segregate. I mean, all at an age appropriate, developmentally appropriate level. And boy, those kids had a lot of questions, mm. intrigued, and they wanted to know. And their innate sense of social justice is awakened mm. when they come to understand some stuff. Like, did you know that this school, that, that, that here you are with these peers, but these peers would not have been allowed to come to the school prior to 1975. Yeah. Um, you know, they were fascinated and they did their research on that. Yeah. So these are some ways, I mean, those kids who've, who've been exposed to these will be different adults than we, yep. our generation. Yeah, yeah, and there is there is so much hope in that. This makes me think about something I heard you talk about within schools, even just about how we talk to our kids and teach them in ways that, like, there's all these implicit messages about body normativity. And how that feeds into it. Can you give a couple examples of that? Because I've not even really thought about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a great question. I mean, we 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 think of the the broader things like open and uh, obvious ableism, but but your question is great because there's so much in so many subtle ways we are giving our children as educators, as parents, as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so here's here's an ex- um, one example, like just simple. Children's rhyme that starts in um, preschool. Mm-hmm. You know, think about the um, ten little fingers and ten little toes. 
song. It's uh, a popular children's song. Um, ten little fingers and ten little toes. Two little eyes and one little nose. You know, mm-hmm. um, two little hands. And the message is implicit. Mm-hmm. Humans have two arms, two legs, two eyes with which they see, two ears with which they hear. Right? right, and that is how we construct humanness and the human body. There would be an obvious teaching moment <laughs> to say, you know, most people may have two little eyes and one little nose, but not everyone. In fact, yeah. Um, let's talk about how different ways people move or communicate. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there is one example of an implicit message of the normative and perfect human body, mm-hmm. positioning everyone outside of that. Um, you know, I remember another example that that hits home for me personally and brings up some um, upsetting memories. Um, my daughter was in middle school and they were learning um, genetics. <laughs> another obvious teachable moment would have been there, but she came home with a handout that literally stated this line, all humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes, two in each equals 46 or something like that. Yeah. Humans have 23 pairs of 46 chromosomes. My daughter herself knew that to not be true and came home and showed me that. Mm. He said, but you said, I have 47. Um, and I thought to myself, how did the science teacher look her in the eyes and hand her a handout yeah. that stated all humans? Instead, I mean, that, that's factually not true. All humans, in fact, don't. Right. Most humans do, in fact. Um, so she asked me what to do. And I said, let's gently edit it. She took it back to the teacher with the word all scratched out and replaced it with most. Mm-hmm. There's another example. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the simple ways in which we give messages like quiet hands, quiet body, mm. you know, uh, no flapping, you know, like for kids with autism, like, God forbid a child should flap their hands. You know, in this universe, like what is going to happen, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it's like we've created this idea that learning occurs this way. Mm-hmm. We sit on a chair, we still our hands, we look at the teacher. But who decided that? Yeah. Who decided that's the normative way of being? What if flapping or rotating or spinning or um, moving is rocking? is in fact my way of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. So good, okay. I feel like we're running out of time and I have like 700 more things to talk to you about. Okay, I would love, well, I really want to talk about your book. Well, the, you've written two books. You had one come out. This, did what, your second one come out this year? No, last year. Last year. Okay. Um, I want to hear about those, but let's talk about ABA therapy. Okay. And this was what okay. Micah, yeah, our one of my co-hosts, Micah, was in the same group as you. And 
and there was a conversation around ABA therapy. What are your thoughts on and experiences with ABA therapy within your context as an educator, as a mother? Okay. Um, as a mother, I have no experience with ABA therapy. We've simply, we've simply said no. Mm-hmm. We've had a just say no policy on that. Um, so the question is not what I think of ABA, but what the adult autism community thinks of ABA. That's how I'd like to answer that. It's, it's a not about me. Um, I, I am an educator, um, yet I am not, I cannot speak for people with autism, right? Mm. Um, I take my cues from the autistic community. And I will say that my understanding is informed by um, by a community of autistic adults um, and, and disability rights activists who have for some time now um, been expressing their opposition to ABA therapy, right? Um, consider it problematic at best, abusive at worst. I mean, and so as an educator, and my my beginnings as an educator were, you know, with uh, some level of positive behavioral um, support. So I've, I've actually been a professional in that area. ABA, by its nature, by its by what it is, is about compliance. It's not about learning. It's not about education, right? It's a, a formulaic way that you can elicit or um, coerce a child into being compliant. Uh, it's about normalizing a child. Mm. It's about how close to normal can we make this child. It's about masking. It's about passing. Mm. It's a therapy designed to try to create in a child compliance. Um, so I am taking my cues from a community um, that opposes it. And, and many have actually um, likened it to conversion therapy. Mm. That, mm. Uh, that was something that was commonly done in, in the 70s and 80s for the LGBTQ Mm-hmm. Um, community, um, and now we all know how how very oppressive that was, mm-hmm. right? To sort of force or reward uh, or punish, you know, like through these consequences to create an outcome um, that is desirable. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. Um, that leads me then to the conversation. I think it's a good segue into being an ally and being an advocate. Um, because like you said, you're getting your cues from the autistic community. Yeah. So if you could talk to that, a lot of the listeners here are moms and we would all, not all of us, I would say from the people I interact with, the majority of, majority of us would say we are advocates for our child with Down syndrome, which I would say is not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. But talk about allyship in that conversation, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I've identified myself as, a, as an advocate as well. I think most of us who are parents do are familiar with that. Um, but yeah, well, most recently, I've, I've been doing a bunch of work on this idea of parents as allies and trying to sort of um, work with families to try to, to move towards this model, right? We all consider ourselves advocates and that you're right, it's not a bad thing. Um, but we need to start thinking about our children um, as people with disabilities that belong to a community, to a culture. Mm. I think first the mind shift has to occur um, that helps us to understand 
disability is not like this this pathological thing that we're trying to fix all the time. Mm. Right? There's that, and then there's our role as mothers of trying to get resources, which is not a bad thing. We're mm. always advocating for resources, for inclusivity, for services. But this is the part we don't think about. Our children are members of a community. It's called the disability community. It's like any other identity group, and we don't think about it that way, right? We're so wrapped up in trying to help our children that we forget that if we identify as non-disabled, which is not an assumption we can make for all parents, right? But if one is a, and I am, I identify as a non-disabled woman raising a disabled child. Mm -hmm. That has to sink in first. Um, to me, it's akin to um, raising a child who is racially different than mm -hmm. you. And through adoption uh, or through intermarriage, you know, like people have that experience. Um, it is akin to a hetero parent mm -hmm. um, having a, a child who is a member of the LGBT community, right? If um, some of your listeners have uh, some familiarity with Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, mm -hmm. it's a whole book about the various instances in which a parent's identity does not match the child. For the vast majority of parents out there, um, identities are family identities, right? For most people, ethnic identities, racial identities are, are constructed together, right, as families. Right, right. But in some situations, your child may be different. And this is how we want to start thinking about it. Our child belongs to a vibrant culture. Yeah. That is not mine. Right. And so then the question becomes, how do I preserve my child's self-worth, uh, a positive sense of identity? Um, how can that happen if this aspect of their identity is not acknowledged, is not celebrated? Mm -hmm. Just like all the other identities in my home. I'm a South Asian woman. We celebrate my culture. Um, my husband is Jewish. My children are Jewish. We celebrate that. Um, right. Um, why would we not acknowledge and celebrate? So I think that that's something. So that's one aspect of allyship. Allyship means um, not just advocating for somebody, but looking at the agendas of that group. Not my agenda as a parent, which is a different agenda, to be fair. Um, and my role as a mother is, is, is as an advocate as well. But allyship is something that we need to look toward because um, there is a community out there that we can connect our children to, mm -hmm. that we can get role models from, um, and all of that can help a young person develop a positive sense of disability identity among other identities, mm -hmm. right? Um, and align ourselves with the agendas of the disability community and work toward that, work in conjunction with the disability community and not taking our cues from professionals alone because that's what we've been doing from the beginning of time right professionals have been telling us about what disability is the yeah. psychologists the psychiatrists the educators the social workers um that's where we've been told that they have been informing us what the experience of disability is but mm -hmm. most of them are non-disabled people sure yeah yeah, that's such a good word. Thank you for sharing that. And I feel like for me, it's a, it's also a practice, you know, like I have to, I, I feel in the last few years really have been 
trying to have a better understanding of being an ally, what that actually means for me. And it is such a moment of pause of, wait, who am I? Um, who am I advocating for? How do I come alongside? You know, how do I listen to? How do I take their lead? My middle, my children are adoptees. And so I'm like in the adoptive community, you know, like who are the voices I'm listening to? My middle daughter is black. Like where are the voices there? So it's, and absolutely with disability, it's in all those categories. So whose voices are we listening to as advocates? Whose lead are we following? Because if we get in front, we're really no longer advocating for what our, what our loved ones actually need. We're doing something self-serving in a sense. Exactly. Exactly. And one real quick example is in, in the issue of language mm-hmm. um, where many well-meaning um, professionals uh, prefer the use of special needs, right. um, exceptionality, exceptional children, um, and people with disabilities. Um, many disabled activists do not prefer the term of special at all and yeah. actually reject that. So that's just one simple example. I mean, let's let's listen to to what people in the disability community are saying about these euphemisms and words that we are using as well-meaning, well-intentioned, but misguided parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and many disabled activists prefer to, to call themselves disabled people. That is not a universal preference, but but many do. So there's um you know, to become aware of issues of person-first language versus identity-first language mm-hmm. and ask someone what they prefer. Yeah, yeah. And who constructed person-first language, right? Was it <laughs> who actually decided yeah. that was that was exactly. best? Yeah. Okay, let's talk about your book because I'm really excited for you to share about your book that you wrote, which is about ableism and motherhood, essentially, right? Called Constructing mm-hmm. the Mother. Mm-hmm. Um, what was your reasons behind behind this book and then where can we get it so um yeah so constructing the mother m in parentheses constructing the m in parentheses other um so i've always been interested in the experiences of mothers of children with disabilities um not to say that dads aren't important for those dads out there that are listening dads are cool um so I'm, cool. <laughs> dads are very cool um, however, my, my specific research has been around the mothering experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and also because mothers disproportionately do the work mm-hmm. of caregiving, um, advocacy and, and so forth. So the story of this group of people, mothers of children with disabilities, um, has always been told through, um, a pathological lens, by the way, uh, for mm-hmm. those who don't know, um, Mother blame for this group goes dates back to the ancient, uh, you know, Greek and Roman era, where um, you know, child was born with a disability. It was believed that um, you know the mothers had displeased the gods. So we have a long history of um, you know, mother is the problem, Um, and even more in more contemporary times, you know, mothers. This group of mothers has been pathologized, medicalized. Um, studied through a um, medicalized lens, considered to be, you know, um, pathologically grieving. Um, Always, you know, there's this idea of the grieving mother grieving the loss of her perfect child. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, psychoanalysis did quite a number on on disability and on on mothers. In fact, uh, thank you so much, Dr. Freud. But the legacy of that lives on. In fact, in psychoanalysis, 
professionals, and if you're wondering where this comes from, right? Professionals were explicitly instructed, do not engage with the mother. Mm. Engaging with the mother is the problem. The mother is the problem of a child with a disability. Wow. Um, they are overly emotional. They are irrational. They are beside themselves. <laughs> they are histrionic. Mm. And, and, and their over-attachment will only make the symptoms worse. So we have a history of this. So I've been interested in this. So the, so your question, sorry, the book. I wanted the stories of mothers themselves. Um, I wanted mothers to speak back to this pathologizing mm. of, of us. Um, there are many books. It's certainly, my book is not the first one about families and mothers of children with disabilities. However, I was not interested in the mothering experience in the context of how hard it is to have a child with a disability mm-hmm. or, you know, how, you know, we are graced and how we grow and how it's special. I'm not interested in that. I was interested solely in how do women construct their identities as mothers mm-hmm. in the context of a society in which their children with disabilities are devalued. In other words, mm-hmm. what do women, how do they make sense of a world in which openly they are given the message through the world of prenatal genetic testing, through the widespread um, comments that they receive when their children are diagnosed or born with a disability, um, the messages of tragedy mm. and devastation, and I'm so sorry, and oh my gosh, and God bless you. How do women construct their identity as a mother in the context of a world in which their child is assigned lesser value? Hmm. And how and what do they do, actually? Not about the disability. There's enough books on that. How do they push back against ableism? Do they push back, Hmm. actually? Do they push back or do they internalize it? That's the Hmm. question. Mm. Um, so what is that dance of internalizing ableism? Um, and do they, through their activities, through their efforts, through their language, try to reclaim their motherhood? How mm. do they position themselves after they've been cast outside the circle of normative motherhood? How do they then regain access to that category called normative motherhood, normal mother. Okay, and that is, yeah. that's my body of work yeah. um, in which I've interviewed women um, and, and, and tried to understand how they seek access, not to special motherhood, but to this category called motherhood, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and how they resist. So the, the book is actually um, narratives of women from around the world. Um, all ways in which they approach the term motherhood. And mm. by the way, and, and some of it is surprising, you'll find. You yeah. know, so I didn't define it for them. I didn't define child with a disability for them. You know, if they, if they identify that way for whatever reason, as a mother, um, they, they wrote their narratives and, and they're in the book and they are narratives of resistance. They are resistance stories. Wow. Oh gosh, I can't wait to get my hands on this book. Is this at the beginning of our episode? I had said something about um, wanting to know more about your doctor, your doctorate work. But I'm assuming it, a lot of it is yeah. in this body of work. 
it's it's absolutely consolidated yeah. in there. Um, okay. And 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 I have a, a chapter on my personal, very personal story, which wow. uh, I I struggled with whether or not I was even going to put it in there. But it was my story of my daughter's birth, and and the ableism that was within me as a professional prior to that, mm-hmm. and my story of sort of um, unraveling that. Oh gosh, I'm so grateful that you've written this. And yeah, like I said, I can't wait to read it. What, um, where can listeners, where can we buy this book? Mm-hmm. Anywhere books are sold? Uh, yeah, anywhere. Yeah, I guess okay. Amazon or whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I'm so grateful for this conversation and for the work you're putting into the world. Like I said earlier, it's just resonates so deeply with me. Um, I, I'm grateful to have found you. I'm now going to be a student of yours from where I'm at. And it is just, um, I feel like seen and known. <laughs> through well, the work I'm grateful to have met you actually. Yeah, I'm really, really thankful. So thank you so much. Where can our listeners find out more about you or follow along with the work that you do? Um, I guess you can follow me on Twitter. Maybe. Okay. Okay. Um, and is it just that's the only media? Name? That's the only social media I'm on. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, my my work is um, out there on you know Google like Google Scholar you can find some of my um, articles. Um, yeah. Okay, and we'll have links to anything in our show notes, listeners. And yeah, I did just a good old Google search for Dr. Priya Vani <laughs> <laughs> and found some really really helpful videos and different things out there. So thank you, thank you so much. We appreciate you very much in the work you're doing thank you so much for having me this was um, a, a wonderful conversation that i enjoyed as well thank you. all right i hate to wrap this up i hope that we can have dr priya lavani on again um, another time to talk about so much more but for now thank you to josh avis for editing this episode and Val leader for producing it if you liked it You can share it with friends and family. We would love if you did that. I think this is a really good one to share with educators. So bookmark it if it's summertime um, or depending on when you listen to it. And then at the start of the school year, say, hey, this would be a good resource to listen to. Make sure you check out her books. Um, And then don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that already. And you can check us out at thelikeyoukypodcast.com for show notes to the books here that were mentioned and some of the articles. And make sure you're following on social media at the Lucky Few Pod. And listener, you're slaying it. You are slaying it. Keep on keeping on. Here at the podcast, we love you so much and we're always cheering for you. Can't wait to be together on a next episode next week. All right. Bye. Bye.